0: Welcome to Wheat Beats Word here on Real Agriculture for Wednesday, April the 19th. On this episode of The Word, winter has returned. Hey, hashtag plant 23 progress. And after that, Fire it at Wheatbeat. We have so much to cover. Let's go. First off, so here's just a little bit of fun. I want to start here. Google the, I think it's pronounced Euclides caterpillar or the lichen mimicking moth or caterpillars. So Euclides, by the way, is spelt E-U-C-Y-C-L-O-D-E-S. Man, it was on Twitter, Uh, someone found one, and and I swear, it does not look like any caterpillar I've ever seen. If you haven't seen that, make sure you find a video to watch, because it is quite really amazing. Okay, next, yes, we've gone from summer last week to, oh my gosh, we're right into winter again, snow and all just really interesting. We do have both soybeans and corn planted. And so the soybeans, they're looking pretty good. They have about a one inch tail on them or root that has come out. I am not worried at all about those soybeans. They had more than 48 hours of good warm temperatures. And so really thinking that they're good to go from that standpoint, the corn crop that is in the ground, again, uh, no cold injury, and that early water imbibition was lots warm enough, but corn seems to, we really like it to, to emerge uniformly, and it's very cool right now, and oftentimes, after we plant corn, if we get these colder temperatures, and we get micro environments in the soil, we won't get as uniform, as perfect a stand. I hope I'm wrong, but that's just one of those things that kind of niggles in the back of your brain that man corn is such a princess we need it to come up uniformly will it actually do that and it will depend of course on does it does it get warm again next week how does that temperature the longer it stays cold I think the more challenge that corn crop is under yeah, soybeans as long as they don't get frozen off or rot in the ground which would take a lot of tough weather I'm not worried about them whatsoever kind of interesting Bob from call but Bob Thurwall saying that he's Stuck the soil probe in the ground. I believe it was Monday night at 4:30. He was astounded. Now this I think is in the Glencoe area. But at two inches, it was still eight degrees Celsius. So that's really warm. What's interesting is that Mark, Mark from Delmarva, they planted corn on I believe it was April the first or April the third, and they had really warm temperatures like we had last week. And then they got two weeks of super cold weather. And he went and he stuck that soil probe in where they had worked the soil, and it had dropped down dramatically, I don't remember the exact number, but something like 41 Fahrenheit, which is around 5 Celsius. He stuck it into a hayfield, and that hayfield was still 10 or 12 degrees, and you go like, wow, why would that be? Well, it's quite simple. We had enough warm temperatures that the soil warmed up, and then once they got that couple of cold days, the grass cover, or the alfalfa cover, or the winter wheat cover, there was enough growth there that it was insulating that temperature. It was going to take longer to drive those cold temperatures in. The bare soil where they worked it, those cold temperatures were going to go in much, much faster. So just a a really cool difference around that. AJ in Kansas reports Yeah, baby, they got rain, so good for them. They've been so dry, they finally got, I think it was an inch of rain. That's enough to get things started, but certainly just enough to get things started. They are going to have to have a whole lot more rain to make the the crop keep going. All right, just in terms of where are we at? Dale Cowan from Agris Co-op reporting that, I think it was at Ridgetown, 158 crop heat units. Now, this is not growing degree days for wheat. That's different calculation because crop heat units, we're using basically a base of 10 Celsius. It's not exactly that because it's a different calculation, but it's close. With wheat, we use zero Celsius, but 158... Versus 58 uh, normal. And so if you had a planted corn right at the very start of the warm weather last week, it typically takes 150 crop heat units to get that corn out of the ground. You could have corn emerging. That's eh, not quite there. But we really are ahead... The dandelions are already in bud. On Saturday, I was out scouting wheat fields. I was near Bayfield. <laughs> they were already in bud. And it was interesting because John Winchell, uh, he's a, a nutritionist, and for the dairy industry basically, his Twitter handle is at so Moo Fan. So M O O as in Dairy Cows Moo and then fan because he's a fan and you can you can follow him or have a look at his stuff. It's it's really interesting because he has tied the development of the alfalfa crop or the triticale crop or the rye crop that a dairy grower is going to harvest for feed and the nutritional value or the quality of that to various plants that you see out in the field. One of them is dandelions. And he looked at the data for for our region and said, wow, if you have dandelions in bud already, that seems like you're way ahead. But yeah, really cool stuff. So, In terms of the wheat crop, I really do think we're about seven days ahead on the wheat crop right now uh, compared to normal. Uh, I haven't got the data exactly, but just looking at that development, I saw winter barley not quite in head at Stratford, not quite formed the head, but you could see the nodes starting to develop. That means the head has got to be developing in there, and already as of uh, Tuesday, the 18th of April, we saw some... Wheat at growth stage 30, so the head you could find the head down in the the stem of the plant just starting to move away from the crown, uh, down in the Essex County region. So, yep, looking like we're we're going well. And Jim saying a. I think this is the best wheat crop I've ever seen. That's what I want to hear. Great wheat. we got to keep that wheat crop going. We'll talk more about that in a bit. Kevin in Essex County is tweeting out a picture saying, Peter, wow, we're ahead. The winter canola is in full bolt. So that means that the flowers are there. It's bolted up. The flowers aren't open yet, but then we're going to get minus temperatures. What's that going to do to my winter canola crop? Hey, you know what's really cool is that winter canola is a little bit of a different beast. Man, if you have wheat and you get frost right at at heading time, uh, that's bad news. But if you get frost in boot stage, it'll take quite a bit more frost... The winter canola crop, it's much more resilient around that flowering time pr- frame. So the bud stage, even if we get really cold temperatures, kill a bunch of those flowers, the winter canola crop will simply make new flowers and reflower and still have an excellent yield. The yield will hardly be hurt at all. Where winter canola really gets nailed hard, or any canola for that matter, not just winter canola, but any canola crop, is when we get those freezing temperatures right at the tail end of flowering and in that early pod formation and fill stage because then the plant won't reflower and that would be kind of be bad but right now winter canola should be in great shape and that's exactly what we want to see because we want to add another crop to our rotation. All right, let's move on. Here's a really interesting thing that was thrown at me late last week and I'm not sure I I need some feedback here. But I know from personal experience that when I blend ammonium sulfate, dry ammonium sulfate with urea, that man, you you get an airflow out there and we do it with our little Valmar and we've learned that we spread our ammonium sulfate separately from our, our urea. Partly that's because we generally don't take the time to get them blended. But man, if you have the two mixed together, they really seem to to attract that humidity and they will gum up on the inside of the tubes or on the splash plates where the air delivery system is coming out and what I learned late last week from a, an agribusiness outlet and a couple of other growers that I talked to is that if you go more than about 50 pounds of product of ammonium sulfate in that blend with the urea, that you can really have way more trouble. If you can keep that ammonium sulfate rate lower, it doesn't seem to have that much impact. So there's, I'd like some feedback on that. If that is true, ah, we've got to rethink some of these blends we're doing. With a spinner spreader, what I was told is that, yep, even with a spinner spreader, if you have a lot of ammonium sulfate in the blend, you're going to have to clean off the the paddles on that spinner pretty regularly or you're going to get into a streaky mess. All right, just while we're on wheat, Tony saying, okay, Peter, uh, one application with an inhibitor versus a split application, uh, where am I at? I got really well-advanced wheat, and so Rob McLaughlin from CNM Seeds and I did a, a video on this exact thing in terms of looking at your stand, assessing your stand. If you have big tiller counts, oh, you really don't want a lot of nitrogen on early. And one of the things I'm concerned about is that there's this concept in the countryside that if I stabilize my nitrogen, that's like a split application. No, it's not. It does slow down the process of that urea, transforming to ammonium and then nitrate. But if you put it on 28%, man, you have that big shot of nitrate immediately available. And it doesn't act like a split application, even on urea, because it does slow down that conversion, but we still get a lot of nitrogen available really early in the growing stages, and that just means you're more lodging prone. So it does not act like that that split application. The one exception is if you're using a product like Pure Yield or ESN and a portion of the fertilizer there, then that portion will be a split application. My big challenge with those products is... Do we know when they're going to release and will they release at the appropriate time for that split application? So I'm a big, like if you really want to manage wheat, I still think split application is the way to go. One application with inhibitor from a, an environmental standpoint, from a nitrous oxide standpoint, yep, that works. But oh my gosh, I'm not sure that it's really going to improve standability on these big wheat crops the way that we would like it to. And by the way, in terms of if you are doing that one application, man, you better make sure that you have it on by growth stage 30, 31, that's Feeks 5 in the U.S. Otherwise, you, you're going to starve that crop when you get that really large nitrogen demand. If you're a big wheat grower and you have put a little bit of nitrogen on to support that crop, then... Second node is typically when we would target that, that gross stage 32. Okay, going to move on. A great Twitter discussion around land leveling. And this is where, if you're not in that particular area, you maybe don't understand. So yes, if you're on really heavy clays... Land leveling can actually make sense. And if you're on a silt loam, you're going, are you crazy? Like, I'm not going to pull my my hill down into the hollow. No, that's not what they're doing with land leveling. What they're doing with land leveling, and Keith Wells tweeted out a great discussion about this or some great points, they're just trying to take out the minor little dips in the wheat fields or in the field because on truly heavy clays, you get that rain and you will get ponding in those in those little mini depression areas get ponding there, and it, because it's heavy clay, it sits there longer, and then it does real damage to the crop. On a silt loam, it doesn't sit there long enough. I, I walk wheat fields. You can have a silt loam, and you can have a 4-inch divot from something that happened with tillage, whatever, The wheat's fine there. You get on heavy clay. It doesn't work that way. So a great discussion there. But yeah, uh, certainly on really heavy clays, taking out those minor little micro depressions, let's call them micro depressions, that makes a big difference. Frank, up in the New Liskard area, showing or sending some pictures of, wow, the, the rain came, the snow was melting, all sorts of water on wheat saying, is my winter wheat going to be okay? And we... You've known the answer. You've heard this before here on The Word. It's how long does the water sit on the wheat? What's the temperature? But probably it's going to be absolutely fine. All right, I want to move on and talk about legacy manure. Wow, just so cool. Woody, my great friend Woody from down in Chatham, Kent, uh, tweeting out a picture again of wheat, and he applied manure in some plots five years ago. Five years You could see right to the line in that wheat crop, and it is the legacy effect of manure. Chris Brown has some really great data where the legacy effect of manure lasted for 100 years. Now, they did repeatedly apply, I think, for 10 or 12 years, 100 years ago, for that manure application. It wasn't just one application, but nonetheless, the legacy effect of manure lasts way longer than you expect. And... Wheat shows it all. And you want to talk about wheat showing it all, and we're going to talk about this on The Agronomist. So here's a a heads up. This coming Monday night, Phil Needham and Wheat Pete are going to be on The Agronomist here on Real Agriculture, Monday night, 8 p.m. Eastern. If you have a chance, join. It's going to be awesome. I'll show the pictures, but I couldn't believe it. I was driving past my neighbor, Mike's Field, and I could see all these angles in the field where the wheat was better, but it made no sense. They were like 20 feet apart. They weren't the tile runs or maybe 18 feet apart. Eh. So (laughs) I talked with Mike. It was from the Great Plains Turbo Till that he ran in the corn stalks before he planted the soybeans last spring, so a full year ago. And here you can see this in the wheat. Just from that one tillage application and at the edges or either in the center, we couldn't tell which it was, either the edges or the center, but it was just as regular as heck all the way across there. Wheat shows everything, and we don't always understand why. Okay, here's some quick stuff. Jim saying, we're going to grow soybeans after our winter wheat crop. That's the hope at least. What about herbicides on wheat or, for that matter, winter barley and double cropping soybeans? And so from Mike Cobra... Anything with clopyralid in it is an issue. So products like Lontrel or Prominex—they're out. They have clopyralid in them. Don't use them. But all the other herbicides are 100% fine. So that's that's sort of where that shakes out. Kind of cool. And then my other weed control issue: Andy from up in the in Bruce County saying, "Oh gosh, Peter, I just got the results. We have Group 14 ragweed resistance." And we have to grow IP soybeans. We're contracted. What is the herbicide program? So I've had a great discussion with Francois Tardif, Peter Sikama, Mike Cobra about this. And they aren't just Group 14. So Group 14 is like Reflex and Aragon and Valterra, that group of herbicides. But they're also Group 2 resistant. So that's the pursuits and the classics, those kind of, of products. And then we might also be group five. So that's the triazines, metribuzin, but they didn't test them for group five. And Mike saying in Eastern Ontario, there are some populations that have been tested that are group two, five, and 14 resistant. In Bruce County, most of the populations we think hopefully are just group two and group 14. But Andy's saying, what's like, what's left? And the answer is, the only thing that is really left is bazagran, and bazagran is so touchy on trying to get ragweed control. Uh, So here's the the thought process. First off, uh, we don't know for sure on these group 14s is, we know that post-emerge, they aren't working, the reflex isn't working, we're pretty sure the blazer isn't working, but we're not sure if some of the group 14 soil applied will still have activity. That's the way it works with the group 27s on water hemp. So we're still thinking that maybe Valterra might some, have some activity there. And the other product, 2,4-D in the burn down, we do see a little bit of residual control on ragweed with 2,4-D in the burn down. So I think we have to go there. That means you've got to put the 2,4-D on and hopefully leave a little window before you plant, although soybeans are pretty tolerant. The other product is Metribuzin. If it is not group 5, not triazine resistant, Metribuzin makes a huge difference in the trials that Mike Korba showed. You need that higher rate of metribuzin. And so from a higher rate standpoint, it's what's your soil pH? Are you sand or are you clay? But we really need to push that metribuzin rate up in order to try to get control of the ragweed. And last, when we use bazagran on ragweed, we often see a bit better control on ragweed if we add the blazer the two together are better than either by themselves, maybe that combination will still, it'll be the bazagrand doing the work, but maybe the blazer burn or acting on the plant will make the bazagrand work better. We're not 100% sure. The upside is, in most fields, this is just happening, so weed populations are not that high yet, we hope, on these resistant ragweed, but if you see it escape, pay attention. It might be resistance. And in IP soybeans, the... It really gets tough. The only other option is go to an Enlist or an Extend Soybean, and then you're, in many cases, you are out of the IP market. Look at that. I am so far out of time. That's it. That's all. On behalf of the team here at Real Agriculture, this is Wheat Pete with the word for Wednesday, April the 19th. Keep the messages coming, and I guess I'll keep talking too long. See you next week.